practice mindfulness meditation every day for 10 to 20 minutes. I fear, however, that that is an overstatement of the facts. It sounds dishonest as I say it. It depends on how one defines meditation. I have a nightly ritual in which I set aside time to meditate, and I do so consistently. But how much of the 10 to 20 minutes, usually with my eyes closed sitting quietly, is an actual achievement of the meditative state? 15 seconds? Several cognitive battles are being fought there, or here in my mind, during those sessions. Most saliently, there is a battle of will which is fought between me and myself over the tendency to imagine or to think about ideas. I enjoy thinking about ideas, and if they are entering my mind and carrying me away, they are something of a siren's call, an attractive temptation to self-stimulation. In my case, following a train of creative thought is valuable because that is where I come up with new insights or considerations which I might explore on the podcast. I've encountered plenty of good ideas while sitting there and avoiding mindfulness. On the other hand, I would like to pursue the actual aim of mindfulness meditation and to gain a measure of willful control over the wanderings of my thought. It's rewarding to achieve a period of flow, a period of present absence, or absent presence, if you like. I am but only as the condition of following each breath. To be capable of sustained mindfulness, to have access to that state of mind at will would be a superpower, which might rescue me from reactivity and ruminative suffering. Thus I am trying to learn to disregard the attraction of imagination, to truly attend to the moment. In previous episodes, I have drawn a distinction between two different meanings of the self. Put simply, I have suggested that there is the self as point of view, and the self-construct. Descartes said, This truth I think hence I am was so certain and of such evidence that no ground of doubt, however extravagant, could be alleged by the skeptics capable of shaking it. I concluded that I might, without scruple, accept it as the first principle of the philosophy of which I was in search. Here, Descartes is making the case that our own experience is undeniable. When he elaborated on what he meant in his Discourse on Method, it is clear that he was referring to subjective experience or consciousness, not thinking as such. But notice that he concludes, therefore I am, from the observation, I think. Thus Descartes infers his own existence, or the existence of his self, from the existence of thoughts. In the Discourse he asks, what am I, and answers, a thinking thing. Contemplating the work of Descartes helped me to see an area of disagreement between myself and Giulio Tononi, the theorist behind Integrated Information Theory, IIT. According to IIT, consciousness is intrinsic to itself. It exists to itself. In fact, Tononi and his colleagues cited Descartes in making that assertion. I noticed that this is not what Descartes asserted. Descartes implied, as I suggest, that the contents of consciousness are intrinsic to consciousness. I have thoughts and perceptions, therefore I am. In fact, we do not observe ourselves. We observe contents and infer ourselves. The self thus inferred is the self as point of view. This is not the self as Jesse, but rather the self as a mind in some sort of communion with self as Jesse. Everything I know about Jesse and about the world, I have taken in as a point of view. So if at the end of life I awoke to discover that I've been living in a computer simulation, I might conclude with some dismay that Jesse never existed. I had only dreamed that I was Jesse. I, however, the point of view who lived as Jesse and implicated itself with Jesse, I who was confused in that way did nevertheless exist. Whether I was looking out upon the valley from the mouth of the cave, or whether my back was turned and I only saw the dance of shadows upon the wall, I nevertheless saw. 
I doubtless existed. But what do we know about the self-construct? What do we mean by this? It may help to take a passage from Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Pollan writes, quote, The achievement of an individual self, a being with a unique past and a trajectory into the future, is one of the glories of human evolution, but it is not without its drawbacks and potential disorders. The price of the sense of an individual identity is a sense of separation from others and nature. Self-reflection can lead to great intellectual and artistic achievement, but also to destructive forms of self-regard and many types of unhappiness. But accepting the good with the bad, most of us take this self as an unshakable given, as real as anything we know and as the foundation of our life as conscious human beings. Or at least I always took it that way, until my psychedelic experiences led me to wonder. Perhaps the most striking discovery of Carhart Harris's first experiment was that the steepest drops in default mode network activity correlated with his volunteer's subjective experience of ego dissolution. I existed only as an idea or concept, one volunteer reported. Recalled another, I didn't know where I ended and my surroundings began. The more precipitous the drop-off in blood flow and oxygen consumption in the default network, the more likely a volunteer was to report the loss of a sense of self. Shortly after Carhart Harris published his results in a 2012 paper in PNAS, Judson Brewer, a researcher at Yale who was using fMRI to study the brains of experienced meditators, noticed that his scans and Robin's looked remarkably alike. The transcendence of self reported by expert meditators showed up on fMRIs as a quieting of the default mode network. It appears that when we when activity in the default mode network falls off precipitously, the ego temporarily vanishes and the usual boundaries we experience between self and world, subject and object, all melt away. This sense of merging into some larger totality is of course one of the hallmarks of the mystical experience. Our sense of individuality and separateness hinges on a bounded self and a clear demarcation between subject and object. But all that may be a mental construction, a kind of illusion, just as the Buddhists have been trying to tell us. The psychedelic experience of non-duality suggests that consciousness survives the disappearance of the self, that it is not so indispensable as we and it like to think." Unquote. In that passage, Pollan referred to work on ego dissolution in psychedelics published by Robin Carhart Harris. I've been looking at a theoretical article in Frontiers in Psychology by Raphael Millier and others, 2018, Robin Carhart-Harris was one of the authors on this paper. It's called Psychedelics, Meditation, and Self-Consciousness. The authors suggest that the self is a multidimensional construct. So let's take a look at these dimensions. These are one, narrative or autobiographical aspects of self, including self-related thoughts and mental time travel, and two, embodied aspects of self coming from sensory perception. The following is from a section on narrative aspects of consciousness. Millier et al. write, quote, The familiar experience of thinking about oneself is perhaps the most salient form of self-consciousness. In philosophy of mind, this is also known as having say thoughts, namely thoughts that involve the first-person concept and are naturally expressed using the first-person pronoun. say thoughts themselves come in different flavors, which are more or less egocentric. Thus, one may explicitly reflect on one's personality traits, or one's life trajectory, both of which are important elements of an individual's identity. This category of say thought broadly pertains to the entertainment of core self-related beliefs and is often linked to the notion of narrative selfhood, the stories we tell ourselves about the kind of person we are or want to be. 
Admittedly, this kind of day-say thought only occurs sporadically in the waking state because we are not constantly reflecting on our personal identity. However, day-say thoughts also include more mundane and pervasive instances of mind-wandering, such as wondering what one will have for dinner. Such thoughts also link back to the self insofar as they engage the first-person concept, even if they are not directly related to fundamental beliefs about one's identity. More generally, this family of self-referential cognitive content includes not only day-say thoughts about the present moment, but also autobiographical memory retrieval and self-centered mental time travel to the future, both of which also crucially involve the self. Together, these self-referential mental episodes constitute what may be called narrative self-consciousness, namely the complex sequences of self-centered thoughts, memories, and imaginings that weave the narrative of our daily lives and shape our core self-related beliefs." Unquote. The narrative aspect of self-consciousness is generally what I am thinking about when I consider the self-construct. Moreover, it is pretty clear that this self is driven by the default mode network. Meditation, as I practice it, is aimed at quieting this part of self-consciousness, the narrational, thought-based self. This is accomplished by attending closely to sensory aspects of consciousness, such as following the breath, staring into the darkness behind the closed eyes, or attending to sensations in the body. One model of network activities based on fMRI data is the alternation between the default mode network and the task-positive network. Each of these networks tends to suppress the other. When we are on task doing something external to ourselves, the task-positive network is active. When we're lost in thought or ruminating on personal concerns and plans, the default mode network is active. I've read that the normal coordination and alternation between these two networks may not function well in ADHD. The other suggested dimension is multi-sensory aspects of self-consciousness. Millier et al. write, quote, while self-related thoughts are a paradigmatic example of self-consciousness, it is widely agreed that self-consciousness is not strictly limited to the cognitive domain. In particular, a number of authors have stressed the need to distinguish between the narrative self, congruent with narrative aspects of self-consciousness outlined in the previous section, and the minimal or embodied self. For example, Gallagher defines the minimal self as a consciousness of oneself as an immediate subject of experience, unextended in time by opposition with the temporal thickness of the narrative self woven by autobiographical memories and self-projection to the future. Moreover, many authors have insisted on the idea that the minimal self is crucially linked to embodiment and agency, equating this basic form of self-consciousness with an awareness of oneself as an embodied agent. While the distinction between high-level narrative and minimal embodied selfhood is helpful as a first pass to clarify the umbrella notion of self-consciousness, it remains somewhat ambiguous and potentially simplistic as such. As we have seen, the narrative self is better construed as a family of distinct self-referential processes which may or may not involve mental time travel, be spontaneous, or recruit abstract semantic information. Likewise, the embodied or minimal self may be construed as a complex set of somatosensory and agentive aspects of self-consciousness which can come apart in special cases. At least three constructs that have been related to a basic form of self-consciousness rooted in multisensory processing may be distinguished, namely a. The sense of body ownership, namely the alleged sense of mindness that one experiences with respect to one's own body or individual limbs. b. Bodily awareness in general, namely the awareness of any bodily sensation, either internal, interoception and proprioception, or external, tactile, and c. 
spatial self-location, namely the experience of being located somewhere in space with respect to one's perceived environment." Unquote. With these two dimensions of self-consciousness in mind, the authors go on to discuss the disruption of the self-construct achievable through meditation. They write, quote, Non-dual awareness meditation, NDA, refers to a family of practices which can be found in several Eastern contemplative traditions, including Zogen and Mahamudra within Tibetan Buddhism, and Advaita Vedanta and Kashmiri Shaivism within Hinduism. NDA meditation rests on three core assumptions. A. Ordinary experience is dual or dichotomous insofar as it is structured around a subject pole and an object pole. B. This subject-object dichotomy is illusory because conscious awareness as such is not fundamentally dual. C. It is possible through the practice of NDA meditation to dispel this illusion and directly experience conscious awareness as non-dual. All of these assumptions are worth discussing. The first assumption in particular requires clarification. It is rather uncontroversial that all conscious mental states have a subject of experience, insofar as an experience is impossible without an experience. This is merely a metaphysical requirement of conscious experience. However, assumption A goes further in claiming that the phenomenal character of conscious experience is itself structured by a subject-object dichotomy. There are at least two ways to understand this claim. As we have seen in the previous section, a number of components of ordinary experience can be related to a form of self-consciousness, including self-related thought, body ownership, bodily awareness, and spatial awareness. One can claim that conscious experience normally involves a background awareness of oneself, which is reducible to one or several of these components. According to this reductionist interpretation, ordinary consciousness is structured by a subject-object dichotomy insofar as we are normally aware of ourselves via thought, perception, and bodily sensations, in addition to being aware of external objects. A second interpretation holds that there is a form of sui generis self-awareness in experience which is irreducible to the cognitive, bodily, and spatial features of experience. Being presented with something necessarily involves being pre-reflectively and preconceptually aware of being the subject to whom something is presented. According to the second interpretation, the seemingly dichotomous nature of experience does not rest on a specific kind of self-representing content, but on the very nature of conscious representation in general, which is structured by an implicit distinction between the represented objects and the subject to whom those objects are presented. In similar fashion, Evan Thompson has argued that ordinary experience is infused with a sense of mindness, such that every thought, emotion, perception, or sensation is experienced as one's own, and has also suggested that this feature can disappear during meditation. On both of these interpretations, conscious experience is structured by a subject-object dichotomy insofar as it involves an awareness of oneself in addition to the awareness of external objects. Accordingly, non-dual awareness states can be construed as conscious states which lack the background self-awareness normally present in experience. However, a core assumption of non-dual awareness meditation practices is that the subject-object dichotomy supposedly found in ordinary experience is illusory, in line with the so-called no-self doctrine of Buddhism. Thus, non-dual awareness practice is supposed to reveal that the putative phenomenological distinction between oneself and one's experience of the external world is ultimately an illusion. While this general idea appears to be consistent with recent proposals regarding the notion of non-dual awareness, it is not always clear which of the two interpretations outlined above is favored. For example, Wolfgang Farsching, 
has argued that in normal experience, subjects are aware of their body and location in addition to objects of the external world, which suggests that he favors the reductionist interpretation of the subject-object dichotomy. In the same vein, he suggests that self-consciousness is rooted in the identification of oneself with certain configurations of experienced contents as opposed to others, which is also consistent with the first interpretation. However, he goes on to argue that in perception I am necessarily co-conscious of myself because the subject-object polarity is built in all conscious representational states. He further claims that some meditation practices can reveal that I am not something inner as distinct from external objects, and that there is no I to which things are given. There is just the event of givenness. In this context, meditation is conceived as a way of becoming aware of consciousness as such, without the illusory distinction between the subject and the objects of experience." Unquote. With regard to the self-construct, it appears that our identification with it can be seen to be a mistake, an illusion. In the previous episode, I demonstrated that the body, say your hand, is neither necessary nor sufficient for the sensory experience of your hand. In the same way, your personality might be altered or stripped away by injury or drugs, and yet you, the point of view upon conscious contents, would persist. With no memory, as in the amnesia patients that I've talked about in the past, there is still this conscious point of view. Experience is often quite perplexing for these people, just as it would be for you or me if we were similarly afflicted. The self-construct relies upon narrative with remembered aspects of the past and plans for the future in order to provide you with a stable and useful identity. The non-duality, which is apparent in certain high-dose psychedelic and meditative states, refers to the self-construct, which appears to be a function of the default mode network. The meditator is having an experience. The mushroom tripper is having an experience. There are contents occurring from a subjective point of view. Otherwise, there would be no consciousness at all. But the conscious experience may no longer identify with an autobiographical or embodied self. In this sense, duality has come undone. But I wonder to what extent we tie ourselves into rhetorical knots over the unity and duality of consciousness. Consider the Earth's crust, which makes up a continent such as North America. If we zoom out over North America and just examine its physical topology, we see wrinkles and slopes, low valleys and high mountain ridges. Is a mountain a thing in addition to the continental crust? It's a feature of the continental crust. In this way, too, the contents of consciousness do not exist in addition to the fact of consciousness. They are features of consciousness. But the mountain and the contents of consciousness are nevertheless things that it is useful to distinguish. The mountain is not an illusion, and the objective fact of the Earth's crust is not a confusion. When it comes to consciousness, we have become allergic to dualistic terminology since Gilbert Ryle criticized it as the ghost in the machine. But nobody is claiming that a mountain is a ghost in the Earth's crust and ruining the seminar for physical geographers who want to talk about mountains. Keep in mind, too, that these networks, such as the default mode network and the somatosensory networks, are part of the cerebral cortex. Most neuroscientific theories of consciousness recognize that the neural correlates of consciousness are localized to the thalamus and cortex. Networks like the default mode network fall within the domain of the integrated thalamocortical system. This suggests that self-content, whether we're talking about narrative or autobiographical contents or bodily sensations which we sense to be ourselves, occur in the same general way as external contents, like sights and sounds do. Either by nature or by nurture, we come to identify with some contents, to think of them as ourselves. This is adaptive, but that doesn't mean it's real. 
However, the selfish point of view cannot be such an illusion. Let's bring it all the way back to what we know. I'll do this in the first person. I am. How do I know that? Because I am experiencing contents. Okay, what am I? I am whatever is experiencing these contents. So there are contents being experienced, and that is what I know. Yes. So am I saying that I exist as an experiencer in addition to the contents of my experience? Well, not exactly. The contents are intrinsic to the experience. There is a whole experience composed of different contents, and they all exist from this one point of view. That point of view is apparently what I am. This sounds dualistic. There are experiences, and there is a point of view which is having them. That's a perfectly reasonable way of saying it, but it isn't dualism to notice that something can be described in this way. A duck quacks. Am I saying that the quacking is something in addition to the duck? Subject, duck, predicate, quacks. Nobody in their right mind would suggest that this is dualistic nonsense. Subject, I, predicate, am. Is the amness something in addition to the I? Stop talking shit.